Welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. The winners are the, the people with the most stories. One of the great things about traveling is the people that you meet. I've slept in bus stations, like yeah. I've slept on people's floors. And it's already on fire, and then there's just a gigantic, huge explosion, like out of a Hollywood movie. It's not right or wrong, it's just different. We hired like 10 Chinese prostitutes to come be our audience. We were kidnapped by nuns in Puerto Rico. <laughs> not a good idea to be high when you're packing. You forget a lot of stuff. I got swine flu. By the time you've lived through it, it's just a good story. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Siegel. Thanks for listening. My guest today is Daniel Pearson. Before we get to Daniel, I have some stuff to get off my chest. First and foremost, our website is TravelTalesPodcast.com. You can go there, see articles that I've written, articles that some of the guests have written. You can see links to our social media. You can see links to the guest social media. Our social media is, of course, Instagram, Travel Tales Podcast on Instagram, Twitter, Travel Tales Pod on Twitter, uh, and our Facebook page, Travel Tales Podcast on Facebook. There are links to Stitcher Radio and iTunes. And if you're on any of those, please give us a good rating because that helps more people find the show by boosting our presence, which is a cool thing. If you think you'd be a good guest for the show or you know somebody who'd be a good guest for the show, you can write me at TravelTalesPodcast at gmail.com. Or if you want to say nice things or say hi or ask me any travel advice, uh, do my best to help you. That's TravelTalesPodcast at gmail.com. And speaking of being a guest on the show, that kind of brings me to this episode. I'm going to peel back the curtain a little bit and let you know that this was recorded, this interview, back in March 14th, exactly three months before it was released. I kept pushing it back for a few reasons, none of them that had to do with Daniel, who was great, but mainly due to the recording itself. This was a Skype interview, and you know how I feel about Skype interviews. I've had good luck and bad luck. Many things can go wrong in a Skype interview. Sometimes, like in the case of Chad Udstrom, the bro abroad, the last episode, that he was in Paraguay, and he was just it was just connection issues. The signal kept dropping, we had static, and that kind of stuff. Or it's a matter of the guest is simply not using a good microphone. Either they're trying to talk into their computer, or they're using a headset mic with their earbuds, which of course sounds just like you're talking on a phone, whereas I'm in my home studio talking into a real microphone. The difference is pretty jarring. And in Daniel's case, he wasn't even that far. He was up in Sonoma when we did the interview, but we had some connection issues, a little bit of static. I get the feeling he was maybe talking on his headset mic. So it's not really the quality I want it to be. And that's not Daniel's fault. And he was great. And I still found him interesting to listen to, and I think you will too. But I wanted to say that about the sound quality, because moving forward with the show, if you are thinking about being a guest or recommending somebody, I'm asking right now, unless you have a decent microphone on your end, then I don't think I'm going to do it. And in a world now of what seems like millions of podcasts, you got to at least sound good. That's my feeling on this whole thing. So moving forward, I want to ask any potential guests to have a decent microphone, an actual real microphone on your end, to be a guest. Also, to give you another little peek behind the curtain, I'm re-recording this the week it comes out. The original intro I made for this was done on a cruise ship two months ago when I was editing. I had a cold, and quite frankly, a lot of the stuff I was talking about was dated by now. And I felt the need to go back and record a new intro, because a lot's happened since then. I'm not in Mexico anymore. Daniel and I talked a bit about Mexico during the interview, and I mentioned during the interview that I was going to Mexico. Well, I already went. Uh, went to Mexico City for five days, had a fantastic time. What an interesting, fascinating city. 
And a lot of people scared me off of it because, oh, it's huge. It's really spread out. The traffic's really bad. The air quality is terrible. Nobody speaks English. It's like, okay, you just described my last 20 years in L.A. Don't tell me. Is it full of Mexicans, too? <laughs> it's... Uh, I got news for you. After 20 years in L.A., going to Mexico, not real, not a real big culture shock. But I will tell you a little travel tip. What saved me in Mexico, what really worked out well, was Uber. I Ubered everywhere around there. Never had to wait more than a couple minutes for a, a car to show up. The rates were a lot lower than in America. And there's no tip option like in America. It's a flat fee and you're in, you're out. And in general, the cars are nicer than taxis. Taking one look at the local taxis in Mexico City, oof. every Uber I got in was nice, driver was nice, worked out well, so Uber it up. But anyway, Daniel Pearson is a big fan of Mexico as well. He started something called Bolt Collective, and essentially, the concept is booking in a group can lower the rate. And as an extra added bonus, you get to meet other like-minded travelers. You get an expert like Daniel or someone else to cultivate activities and plan a vacation to take you places you most likely would not have found yourself. And I thought it was an interesting idea. Daniel contacted me and told me about it, and I thought it would make for a good interview, and he was a nice guy. So we talk about his background and how and why he started Bolt Collective. We talk about some of the trips he's taken and will take in the future, and how you can join up if you want to get involved. I thank Daniel for doing it. It was great to meet him. Once again, I apologize for the sound quality, but I promise it'll get better moving forward. So please enjoy my conversation with Daniel Pearson. Dan Pearson, let me let me hear you. Are you out hey, there? I'm here. Right, I'm right here. You're in Sonoma, which is a lovely place. I am wine wine country, although it's a bit of a drizzly day, so it doesn't feel like it. How is it with the uh, fire damages up there? Yeah, you know, I, I got my drone up in the air yesterday from uh, my buddy's farm in the hills above Sonoma, and um, you can really see where uh, the fire lines um, pretty dramatically uh, ended up. And it's yeah, I mean, there's so much devastation here, but. Um, Look, looking like they're starting to, to kind of get back on their feet and there's new construction coming up. Oh, that's good. Are you the founder of Bolt Collective? I am, yeah. So that's uh, a new um, project that I started about six months ago. Okay, so briefly, in your elevator pitch, tell people what uh, Bolt Collective is. Okay, Mark Cuban, are, are the rest of the sharks ready? Yes, you have 11 <laughs> seconds or whatever. <laughs> that should be more than enough time. Cool, so, so Bolt... Um, it's a community of folks coming together and using their collective purchasing power to unlock otherwise impossible travel experiences. So a great example of that down in the BVIs in January, I'd been on the phone with these uh, charter companies saying, hey, um, we're looking to rent four boats um, to bring a big, a big group down and looking for a 40 percent volume discount. So that took an experience that normally would cost a couple thousand dollars per person and made it a lot more accessible and drops down to about $1,200 per person. So um, that's kind of the, the hypothesis that we're working on. You bring a really awesome committed group of people together and, and, and see what kind of otherwise impossible travel experiences that that kind of group power can, can open up. So you're basically buying in bulk to save money. That's, that's definitely part of it. Um, another part is the, the curation of the group itself. So trying to um, bring together a, a a diverse yet like-minded um, group of people, and then 
The third leg of the bar stool that I like to, to think about is the design of the experience themselves and making them really unexpected, delightful, magical, and, um, and, and really trying to bring a sense of design into it. Well, who was the typical Bolt member? Is it, uh, is it people in their 20s? Or what's the common demographic? Sure, that's a great question. And um, that gets into a bit of the diversity uh, aspect. We're really looking for, for folks and hoping to attract folks who don't necessarily fit into a certain mold, but are more the adjectives that come to mind are curious, adaptable, of course, just like really nice people, adventurous people. Um, and within that framework, I mean, we've got folks who are anywhere from 25 years old to 65 years old, people from all different walks of life, all different backgrounds, all different geographical locations. So really um, trying to, to create um, as diverse a community as possible. Well, what kind of vacations does Bolt really specialize in? Is it a more an active kind of thing, like uh, we're going to go skydiving, or is it just kind of a mellow, we're going to hang out in a city, or is it all the above? It's really all of the above. Um, so my background is in much more, uh, for the most part, independent travel, so things like long-distance bicycle touring and long walks across countries and backpacking in the mountains and taking 30-day trips through the Colorado River on the Grand Canyon. Um, so that's my personal background. But at the same time, I've always kind of been that person who creates group travel for friends and family. So that's things like putting together houses in New Orleans and experiences in New Orleans during Jazz Fest or ski houses or over New Year's, a uh, sailing trip through um, the San Blas Islands in Panama. Um, so it's kind of a bridge between those two things. Each experience is one per month, um, and each experience incorporates kind of a, a different concept or a different theme. And certainly, some of them some of them are more outdoor oriented, while others are are, are more kind of um, explorations of, of cities or of, of different places. Is there a, a guide that goes along with these, or do you just kind of set people on their way and just give them an itinerary, and their the groups is kind of on their own? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, there's more of I think of it as a, a community manager type of role that goes on each experience, which primarily is, is myself at this point, but will likely grow um, in the next six months to a year as, as uh, we offer more experiences. So instead of these experiences being more programmed, kind of very obligatory, mandatory, everybody on a bus at 9.30 a.m. to go on this tour kind of thing, they're much more kind of loosely crafted so that every day there's one piece of programming that's totally optional. You can join if you want and uh, is, is kind of along the lines of what I was mentioning before around being really unexpected and, and delightful and, and kind of out there. Um, so I can jump into some specific examples of that if, if that would help. Sometimes I think of it as like kind of like group travel for people who hate group travel because um, my worst nightmare in a way would be like, okay, it's 9.30 a.m., everybody get on a bus and, and go. That That's kind of uh, really challenging in different ways and, and just not right for me, I think. Um, and maybe some other folks might be attracted to this. So like some other examples, uh, like our first experience was uh, over New Year's down in Oaxaca, Mexico. So that's a town uh, and a place where I lived for about six months um, back in 2015. Just have a lot of friends and a lot of local knowledge. So we took a crew of Bolt members down there and rented this compound of treehouse villas right on the beach. Um, and because uh, I was a little bit of a, of a, of a cheat, just because I knew the area so well, um, it had kind of local connections that could facilitate some amazing experiences. But apart from just enjoying kind of the beach and, and having a chance for members to make connections with, with other folks who were traveling down there, uh, one day we chartered a boat and went whale watching out to this, this private beach. Another evening, a friend of mine down there runs um, a Temescal, which is like a native um, sweat lodge ceremony. So we brought our members that were down there into the sweat lodge and had a ceremony in there towards the end of our trip. 
another, we had a, we had a private chef, uh, cook us a dinner on this really awesome beach for new year's Eve. So yeah. So trying to introduce kind of those elements of, of just unexpected kind of fun and, and intrigue and, and mystery and yeah, kind of playing on that idea. I'm going to be in Watulco next month. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah. You, so you have to get over to amazing. Yeah. So you have to, uh, Watulco is beautiful, um, but it's a bit more built up. Yeah, well, uh, I'm working a on a cruise to... ship, so I'm getting off. In there you go. Watulco. Oh, cool, cool. Oh, great. Are you going to have a day or two to hang out there? Well, I'm getting off in Watulco, and then I have uh, like five or six days before I have to get to Puerto Vallarta to get on another ship. So I was going to go. I've never been to Mexico City, so I was going to go to Mexico City oh, and hang out, which I've never been. I've been talking about for years, but um, yeah, I've been through Huatulco a couple times. Okay, cool. Have you ever been to further, I guess, northwest along the coast through like Masunte, Zipolite, any no, of those towns? No, no, no. Oh, cool. So, nice. so uh, oh, it's probably my favorite place in the world. It's so authentically Mexican and still kind of undeveloped, but just with r the right amount of kind of tourist infrastructure. And it's a really special place. And then Puerto Escondido, a little bit further, further northwest, you could fly to Mexico City. Um, and Mexico City itself is now now we've got me off on a tangent because Mexico is literally my favorite country in the world. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing about about your trip. Yeah, it's uh, it's a really special place. Well, let's talk about your background in in travel industry. Were you in it before or did, were you just a traveler and you took a couple bad tours and said, you know what, I want to start my own company? So I'd never worked in group travel per se. Uh, my background was in working in technology. Um, so most recently, I worked at Lyft, the, the ride-sharing company, yeah. um, leading their travel partnerships. So I focused on partnerships with hotel brands and airlines. So that was my first kind of exploration of the travel industry. And then my my personal background has been, I think I mentioned some of the, the trips I've been lucky to take, like bicycle tours across the United States and around New Zealand. And then the, the how that kind of, how I bridge that to create Bolt is also on a personal level, I'd always been the person to organize group travel. So that made me feel really comfortable with, with kind of turning that into a more structured organizational approach to it. And then I also, about five years ago, started producing and promoting music in New York City, which is also very experiential and has a lot of the same kind of production challenges as as group travel. Um, so all of those things kind of are, are a, a big hodgepodge of different backgrounds that I feel like give me a really good base to, to take on this, this new project. How many trips do you organize per month or year? Have you limited it or is it growing? How many? Yeah. So right now it's, it's one per month, so 12 a year. So the kind of experiment here um, is that all of the, the experiences are at cost. They're, they're not for profit. So trying to eliminate the, as to as much a degree as possible, the, the kind of barriers and uh, issues that come up with money. Um, I sometimes call myself like a reluctant capitalist. But the idea is all of these experiences themselves are at cost or nonprofit. And then the organization itself, which is me and a couple other folks who are working on it, are supported by, by membership dues. So we're at 12 per year. And hopefully... Um, as we grow, we'll be able to offer more experiences for, for members yeah, in the future. So correct me if I'm wrong. This is a payment structure that's like you're joining a club, right? Even if you're not going on the trip. Is that how this works? Yeah. So, so paying into the community, buying into the community gives you access to as many experiences as you'd like to go on per year. Okay. Um, as well as like a Facebook group and, and uh, the community itself. Can you say what the membership dues are or the fees? Oh, sure. Uh, so it's $300 per year right now. Okay. And that gets me access, basically. Exactly. So once once you've paid your membership dues and joined the community, you have access to all of these experiences. 
that are at cost. So normally group travel, there's like a markup, obviously, because the, the organizer has overhead and has to make a profit. So our approach is we try to keep the overhead very low. And that, that's what the uh, membership dues pay for is supporting the organization itself so that the experiences then can be at cost and make the maximum value out of that idea of the collective purchasing power. Now, when you do the planning of a trip, how much of it is uh, on the location or travel-wise? Do you, do you don't handle flights or anything like that, or, or is it on people's own to get to where you got to go? Yeah, so flights are, are outside of our purview just because we have members coming from all around the world to right. join experiences sometimes. So there's a, like a start date and then an end date. And we try to include as much – it's a bit of a balancing act, honestly – uh, because we're trying to include as much as we can while still leaving room for like the serendipity and chance that I think makes travel really magical. So some experiences by nature, like that BVI sailing experience that I mentioned, like all of the food was included because we were all on boats. Whereas in Mexico, for example, like we could have made it kind of like all inclusive, but I think it makes more sense to just to have a home base and then have the opportunity to engage in, in programming, some of which included things like food, but also leaving kind of the universe open to, to other um, chance encounters. I've done a couple of tours, well, more than like a, um, a four or five of them, mostly with uh, Intrepid based out of Australia. Um, cool. I don't know if you ever used them or anything, but one of the things I did like about I mean, the things I don't like, but uh, what I'm not going to get into, but the things, one of the things I do like is they do carve out a time every day where free time basically you know it, oh. these things can be overly scheduled you know what i mean mm -hmm, mm -hmm. did you is that something you're conscious about when you plan something yeah absolutely so i would <laughs> i would say like that's 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 great um and i love hearing about other approaches to travel i think we'd almost take like the, the flipped approach to that in that your entire day is free. There's just a bit of time carved out for some kind of optional programming that you can join. Um, and of course, it's it's dependent on the experience itself. But really, this is much more of like a free form approach to group travel that gives you like a framework to, for the trip itself, but still gives you a lot more flexibility to, to explore on your own. Let's get into your background a little bit. So you said you were a, sure. you're, you're a tech guy. Where do you live now and where did you grow up? I'm very much a reformed tech guy. But I grew up in, in New York, uh, just north of the city, and had a pretty nomadic experience kind of after high school. I took some time off and went to Alaska, Australia, New Zealand, and then started college in upstate New York. Hated that. Uh, transferred down to New Orleans to Tulane University, but ended up there for I moved down there the day before before Hurricane Katrina back in 2005. Oh, so I good timing. Up to Indiana. I know. I know. That's uh, that's a hallmark of mine. It's just really great timing. And then you went uh, to Indiana? Went to Indiana, then back down to New Orleans. Um, so I ended up doing, after my gap year, it was three colleges and three semesters, which I think really kind of uh, set me on this path towards towards a nomadic existence. And I haven't really stopped since. So after college, lived in Argentina for a while, uh, Colorado, and then moved to California for about four years to really immerse myself in the startup thing. But I mentioned that job at Lyft and really just realized towards the end of my time there that I just wanted to spend all of my my waking hours outside. So I started taking like half an hour long walks during the day. I started taking hour long walks during the day, just getting up from my desk and really leaving and walking around San Francisco right. and then two hour long walks. And then I quit that job and rode my bicycle across the United States. Wow. One day you just like kept walking and didn't come back in. It's one of those Pretty things much. that 
yeah, yeah, I'm going to take a walk. And then is he coming back? No, Dan's not coming back. He's, yeah, we we haven't seen Dan in a while. We're still paying <laughs> his check. He's still getting a salary. But <laughs> He's kind of checked out. Well, that's good. Wow, you've been uh, you really uh, took it to heart. You went you went all over the place. Where in Argentina did you live in Buenos Aires? I lived in Buenos Aires. I love um, that I traveled, city. Uh, it's a really really special place, and I had an interesting experience there recently. So I lived there right after college. It was 2008 to 2009. Um, and I hadn't been back since I traveled all over Latin America and other places. Um, but hadn't been back since and had, had a pretty amazing experience going back there for the first time, um, in almost 10 years and just seeing all these places and friends and all these folks were asking me like my, my Argentinian friends, what's changed since you've been back, you know, since you left. And the only thing I could really think to say was, was I've changed and I'm seeing this place through a new lens after all the other experiences I've had in the past eight years. So yeah, Argentina is a wonderful place. Uh, Buenos Aires specifically, as well as Patagonia and Iguazu and all the other places West and Mendoza and Cordoba. So I, I totally agree with you. Well, I'm on your website right now looking at uh, some of the, the packages you got for this year or was this last year? What's up right yeah, this, now? These, those are all upcoming. Yeah, okay. those are all upcoming. So upcoming, you got uh, Jazz Fest in New Orleans. Yeah, so so the third university I went to was was Tulane in New Orleans. Sure. I lived there for about years. So we've got a couple of mansions rented in the French Quarter um, and in the Marigny uh, and bringing folks down and utilizing a lot of the um, connections I have in the music industry in New Orleans, just friends who run clubs and manage musicians. And um, so we've got a, a pretty full spate of, of uh, different um, kind of kind of programming plan for that uh, last weekend of, of Jazz Fest coming up in May. But it does not include tickets to the, the festival itself. So Jazz Fest tickets are not included. Um, what we're really focused on is the experiences after the fairgrounds close. Um, so Jazz Fest is, for, for listeners who may have been or are thinking about going, um, there's the fairgrounds during the day, which is kind of the organized portion of Jazz Fest. And then there are regular night shows. And then there's actually late night shows that go from like 2 a.m. to 7 a.m. So we're, we're, we're really focused on rather than the fairgrounds themselves, which are like a pretty massive kind of Bonnaroo or Glastonbury or uh right. or coachella type experience um it's amazing in itself and very different from those festivals but on that level of production those kinds of headliner bands we're really excited to show folks like more of an insider's experience in new orleans and really small clubs and a more intimate setting okay and i'm noticing you got something for may it's a california gold rush are you staying like in an old ghost town or something? Yeah, yeah. So there's this ghost town called Polga uh, that was abandoned for about 40 years. Um, it was first started in the 1890s when gold was discovered in California. It's, it's about an hour and a half north of, of uh, Sacramento um, in the hills of Northern California. We're doing like a, a bit of a ghost murder mystery there. And then the town itself has just all sorts of little nooks and crannies to explore. And we're going to have bands and DJs. So that's a little bit of an outlier for us in that it's a larger event. There will be about 50 or 60 people there. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas most of our, our experiences are more about 15 or 20. But yeah, trying to just really add a level of diversity and kind of a, a bunch of different um, experiences within that calendar of, of 12 per year. So that'll be a fun one. Right. And then I'm looking at you got uh, some river rafting in June and then you got sailing through the Virgin Islands in November. Yeah. And there will be four or five more um, in between that we're still in the, the kind of concept and planning stages. Um, but yeah, full, pretty full slate here of, of 12 per year. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's a lot to, to work through, are but, you, uh, but a lot of excitement too. Are you yourself going on all these? Right now I am. I think now that we have three or four under our belts, I'm realizing that 
uh, as awesome as that is, it's not the most sustainable, sustainable pace to travel once per month and, and have that kind of, and also there are folks I think who can add their own personal experience and skill set and background to creating these experiences. So talking with friends who've worked for um, organizations like TED and Summit Series and, and Ski Week and Yacht Week to kind of, and uh, as well as the community itself. And um, one thing that I've been really excited about is the folks who have joined the community are really interested and excited to help both conceptualize and also plan and even execute these experiences. Do you make a point to, I mean, some, some of these companies like yours, I mean, they usually have a theme of, I don't know, whether it's sustainable travel or helping local businesses, do you try to focus on uh, the locals when you're there and, and do what the locals would do? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think particularly in places where we have local knowledge like Mexico, that really incorporating local experiences was was a big part of it. And the BVIs, um, for example, um, I mean, we were there in January. It's so only a few months after the hurricanes Irma and Maria had come through. Mm-hmm. So I mean, just meeting locals there and hearing their stories of resilience there. We had a, a day of helping out with Habitat for Humanity there. And um, we're striking a balance, of course, like I think a lot of organizations are and a lot of people thinking about travel are of like the leisure end of travel while also trying to incorporate service into it as much as we can. So trying to yes, strike that balance. Well, give me some of uh, your recent trips and some highlights from them and what have been your favorite ones so far? Sure. I mean, Mexico, I think just by virtue of being a place that I love so much and having the opportunity to share um, Oaxaca with um, with other people was definitely a highlight. That was our first experience. We were just up in Whistler this past week. Just rented a, a villa um, outside of the village and probably the highlight all week. We were really focused on snow boarding and skiing um, just because that's it was just so epic up there it didn't really uh, we had a group consensus that um, didn't really leave much time for anything else uh, we arrived on Wednesday night and um, Thursday mor- morning woke up to about a foot and a half of fresh powder but one of the highlights of the week was definitely uh, all throughout the week we built this igloo in our backyard and at the end of the week once it was finally completed uh, ate a four course meal outside uh, inside of it so it was just a fun little little beast uh, little kind of bit piece of programming that kind of alludes to what I was talking about earlier about the kind of like unsuspecting and, and just this delightful aspect of, of what we're trying to do, like really bringing that sense of design to it. So how many people went on this uh, Whistler trip? How many days was it? And how much did it cost them? Whistler, we had eight folks go up. It was uh, five days long and each day um, it, that was by day. So it was designed so that people could could join and, and depart according to their schedules. And it was uh, $125 per day. Um, and that covered the accommodations as well as as that program as is the programming that I mentioned. So just not uh, lift tickets. That was extra. Exactly. Yeah, lift tickets were were extra. Okay. What can people who are interested uh, about Bolt? What can they look forward to in the next year? What do you got in the hopper? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, another great example of that power of that um, collective purchasing. Uh, I'm talking to a friend of mine who he operates a safari company in Tanzania, um, and his biggest expense is finding folks to go on these safaris. So he told me, he's like, if you can get a group of of 12 people together, or they work in multiples of six for the Land Rover Jeeps that they take out on the Savannah, he Mm -hmm. told me, if you can get 12 folks together or 18 folks together, I mean, they can do close to half off of, of what a safari normally costs, which like... It's pretty kind of exclusive price point for most folks, including myself. But when you take a 40% or a 50% discount, um, that becomes much more accessible. So that we're looking towards towards end of October, November, shoulder season in Tanzania is another good example. And then, yeah, really like trying to put it out there into the community as it stands right now, trying to 
really source new and innovative ideas. And it's very much, it's, it's an experiment. I like to call it an experiment. And um, it's still in the pretty early stages. Um, so there's so much input from members that determines interest in, in what we're going to do moving forward. So I went to Tanzania uh, and did the Kilimanjaro climb, but I tied in. A, oh, amazing. Um, amazing. I, I tied in a safari before it. So sure. in terms of big things like Kilimanjaro or hiking to Everest Base Camp or Machu Picchu and things like that, uh, would you go that big or do you want to leave that part up to other tour companies? That's a great question. I think if we if we develop like an interesting take on it, then we would definitely look at it. I think like the places you mentioned in particular are pretty well served by or they seem to be well served by more established tour companies. That said, I mean, that gets back to it being an experiment. And if there were a group of members that were like, oh, we really want to do this Inca trail or, or one of the um, other other treks to Machu Picchu, um, I think we could bring an element of, of our own kind of design aesthetic to, like I've been on that Salca, I think I did the Salcantitis so many years ago, uh, but I did that Salcantai trek. And maybe if, if we could find the right provider and, and figure out ways to like enhance what's a pretty standard experience, then I'd, I'd be all about it. So, yeah. So let's go farther down the line. Let's go, say, five yeah. years from now. Where do you see Bold Collective at? And where do you picture sending people? Where do you think it's going to take? Sure. sure. So we're intentionally capped at 300 people for the foreseeable future, which uh, which feels like a number that's manageable, um, where we can make sure that we're preserving kind of the intentionality and the um, dynamic of, of the community. So perhaps in five years, three years, a five-year timeline a bit further out, um, we look to expand uh, beyond that number. It's, it's a possibility. And again, in, in the nature of it being experiment, I think we're trying to keep all of our, our options open. And one of the interesting things about that collective purchasing power model is, uh, I'll you an example that I mentioned earlier, um, of being down in the BVIs and having those conversations with charter companies, the, the, the first conversation I had with them um, with a membership base of 300 is, hey, we want to rent four boats for a week. And that got us something like a 40% volume discount. But imagine if I could say if we had a thousand members and we could say, hey, we want to rent four boats for an entire month and just have folks come down throughout that entire month. And we're looking for like a 60% volume discount. And that just increases the access um, for the membership as a whole. Um, so that's one thing that I, I think about a, a bit further down the line. And then, yeah, in terms of, of where we go or what we do, I mean, the organizations that I look to that are just so, so amazing when it comes to like that experiential design, which are, I mean, TED and there's uh, an organization called Breakout that I'm a big fan of and another uh, like like the Summit Series folks and Dinner in the Field and Dinner Lab. And they're, I mean, experiences are, are just such a massive, massively growing and exciting way for people to spend their time and money that I think there's uh, there's just so much out there to explore and like trying to keep it free form enough, I guess, to, to keep up. Well, let's talk about you. Let's dive into uh, Dan the Man here. Sure, sure. What was the first trip you took that really kind of blew your mind and uh, changed your views on travel? Probably that gap year that I took, um, hitchhiking around Alaska and riding buses all over Australia and New Zealand, staying in hostels for the first time, meeting folks from really all over the world for the first time. I mean, that, that year, I think, completely opened up my previously sheltered suburban existence into the the knowledge that there was so much out there to, to explore. Where is your dream destination that you want to go that you haven't been yet? Bucket list. Bucket list dream destination. You know, I used to think 
that I didn't have one. And then I started looking into Bhutan and it's a bit out of my reach right now financially um, because it requires there's a, a pretty pretty um, expensive uh, entrance fee. And you also you need to stay on these organized tours um, that cost something like five hundred or a thousand dollars a day. But the photos that I've seen and the stories that I've heard have me really itching to go to go to the, the kingdom of, of Bhutan. Where is one place that you you'd be OK if you never went back to again? <laughs> Um, I am going to go with Cleveland. Huh, that is, yeah, that is such an ex. That is such an excellent question. Uh, and, <laughs> well, and was someplace a letdown? That. Like you know, you got there and you're like, no, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. Yeah, you know, I, I honestly I haven't had that experience. Oh, that's good. Yeah, I, I think like I've been lucky to find interesting. Well, you know, now let me let me back up. Let me back up. I took a I took a train one time six hours to get from Prague to to Slovakia and the Tatras Mountains in the east of, of Slovakia. And I got there and it rained for seven days straight. And they'd had a windstorm earlier that year that literally knocked down every single tree to the point where it looked like a lunar landscape, which was so sad. And I got there and I stayed in a hostel for seven days by myself. There were no other guests. <laughs> and I <laughs> And it was it was otherworldly. So while it, I would gladly go back to to Slovakia, I think, and maybe try again, that was one experience that uh, was definitely a bit out there. What's the most unusual thing you've ever eaten on the on the road? I looked at a, a lime ant once in Australia that tasted like like key lime pie. A lime ant? I never heard of this. Yes. Yeah, neither had I. It was uh, it was interesting. Do they cook it or are they just it just? You eat it raw. No, no, no. You don't even eat it. You just you just touch it to your tongue and lick it. Is this like bush food? Yeah, I think probably it is derived from Aborigines. Right. I would guess. Oh, sure. Yeah. Oh. Wow, that's that's rough. You got yeah, me beat. Yeah, I tough. haven't had any too many ants. What's what's uh, what's the weirdest food you've ever eaten? Oh, I've had a bunch of stuff. I had like uh, guinea pig in Peru. I've eaten insects in Thailand, and you know. But if you stir fry insects enough, you know, you can stir fry anything enough, you can eat it. <laughs> You know, <laughs> just tastes like chicken. Yeah, yeah, no it's worry. kind of like a little nut or something. Yeah, I consider myself to be an adventurous traveler, but not much of an adventurous eater. You have a uh, you have a sensitive stomach. You getting sick on the road? No, I just like am kind of a wuss like that. I'm always you know I'm always the person that's just like I'll watch you eat it, but I think I'm gonna hang back and just just listen to your uh, listen to your experience doing it. Gotcha. I don't know. In terms of minding people, this is my fear. Every time I think I could like organize a tour or lead a group. Uh, if you've ever worked with the general public, there's always one in every group that you just want to mm-hmm. strangle with two hands. <laughs> what's the What's the oddest request you've gotten from from somebody? Uh, or demand? Have yeah, they demanded yeah, yeah, yeah. something that was way out of your? Out of you your know, reach? we 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 kind of hoped to head that off at the pass um, by having a a fairly involved interview process to join in which. Um, you not only speak to me, but you also speak to a current member um, to kind of assess one of the key traits that we're looking for, which is adaptability. Are you trying to weed but out the I high mean, maintenance people? I mean, yeah, I don't blame I you, but high, I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's. I wouldn't say high maintenance as much as adaptability as a trait is very important because that's something that's just going to happen in travel. There's always going to be a, a wrench in the plans. Like a great example of that um, was that BVI's experience, our JetBlue flight from Puerto Rico to St. Thomas was canceled. So it just kept getting delayed, 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 finally canceled. There were some folks that were already waiting at the marina to depart. We had some folks that were with us um, that were scheduled on that flight. And what we ended up doing was just just chartering a plane uh, to kind of to get it done. So I find 
it's not so much the high maintenance folks that you have to worry about as just the unforeseen um, pitfalls and happenstance kind of near disasters of, of organizing group travel. It's definitely, definitely hectic. And you, you want to make sure that you have people who are up for those kinds of, of, uh, of, of lefts and rights and ups and downs and, and having to swerve around potential challenges. We'll talk about that. What what kind of uh, recourse do people have? Uh, is there some kind of travel insurance or something like that in, in case that is canceled or something? Can they get their money back or do you, do you handle insurance? We have we have a group insurance policy that covers like liability. Um, as far as travel insurance, I mean I. I go back and forth on it personally as, as a traveler. Um, I often will forego it. I think also credit cards now are really good. Um, it's just a practical tip. Um, some of the more popular credit cards out there will offer travel insurance like a Chase Sapphire Reserve or Preferred or, or at most Amex cards. If you purchase your, your plane ticket um, using the card, it'll have trip delay and trip interruption insurance incorporated into, into it. So at least for flights and, and trip delays, that, that's very helpful. Well, we could wrap this up, and I, I'm I'm glad you contacted me. You know, this is kind of a, a cool organization, and uh, I wish you the best of luck with it. Yeah, thanks so much. It's a bit of an experiment, but uh, we're we're pushing ahead on it, and lots of exciting um, things in the works. And I think overall, what, what keeps me really motivated to, to work really hard is just um, the folks who have joined or come from such a broad, diverse background of life experiences and ages and interests that it's, it's really, it's, uh, I'm, I'm very grateful to, to have the opportunity to help them do something that's you know, most important of all, which is making the most of their time. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's really exciting. Get your plugs in, give people the website and how they can contact you. Sure. Uh, so we're boltcollective.co. Um, so it's boltcollective.co and we are uh, pretty easily found on Google, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all that good stuff. And then I'm Dan Pearson, P-I-E-R-S-O-N. And I'm on Instagram and all those as well, just by by my name. Um, and always happy to hear from folks with questions about any of the places that I mentioned or bike touring or points and miles hacking. Feel free to reach out. Any, any questions there? And um, yeah, thank you so much for your time. I, can, I really appreciate it. Uh, oh, sure. coming on so you're a .co and not a .com what's the difference .co uh, .co is uh, for people who got to the internet late <laughs> I like it Bold Collective BoldCollective.com is a wonderful group of hairdressers outside of Portland, <laughs> Oregon who have organized uh, into like a loose network as I understand it so they um, they got there first and got the .com so we're working with .co gotcha uh, I thought, I thought they'd be I thought it was like a weed collective do people think right, you're that too? I haven't heard that one yet, but but if that's what uh, you know, if, if we're yeah. we're in Northern California where it's legal, so, so that's totally fine. Yeah, too. whenever you hear collective in California, you know, just, uh-huh, you just uh-huh. assume it's a weed <laughs> thing. Um, okay, well, and finally, finally, what do you think travel has done for you as a person? in changing you in the way you live your life and what do you hope to provide for people with your business and what you do and giving them the gift of travel? What has it brought you? I think the one thing that I'm always struck by as I travel to different places around the world is, is like the universality of travel um, and how people all over the world are really looking for the same things. They're looking for more opportunity for themselves to work on the things that can sustain themselves, both obviously financially, but also in terms of like their personal passions and making sure that their children have more opportunity. Um, so that's something that I think is a real gift from travel coming from some such like privileged sheltered places. Well, I guess I would speak for myself personally there as just somebody who grew up in the United States in a very middle class background. 
Um, so that's something that I'm, I'm always struck by is how we all, regardless of where we are, or who we are, or how we grew up, like we all literally want the exact same things. So figuring out, I think that's really the, the challenge of our time is, is figuring out how to increase uh, like equitable access to more opportunity. So travel anywhere is a great reminder of that. All right. Well, thanks, Dan. I appreciate it. Cool. Hey, thanks so much, Mike. I appreciate you, man. No, sure. And uh, I'm glad we could uh, make it happen. So it's Dan Pearson, everyone. Silence. I was lying back gazing skyward when the moment got shattered. I remember what she said, and then she fled in the path of a lightning ball.